Such a good song for what we're going to be talking about this morning. Just point out a few lines in there that Christ is the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. And that very last line of that last verse where it says, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we've endured. And we'll be talking about that this morning. If you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Bill preached on 1 Peter chapter 2 on New Year's Day and talked about our privilege and purpose that we have as a church and this opportunity that we have to grow together to help our community and glorifying God through those things that we do. But also, we're going to be spending this spring in First Peter in our Sunday school classes, and so I thought it'd be appropriate this morning to preach on the first chapter of First Peter. And it's a wonderful passage, it's rich, it's packed full and so we're going to get the fuller context. We're going to start reading in verse 1. I know your bulletin says verse 3, but let's start reading in verse 1. If you would follow along with me this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that it is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Since the reading of God's word this morning, would you pray with me as we seek his help to understand it? Father, we praise you for this wonderful passage of faith and hope and how we're to live our lives, looking to Christ who is our sure and steady anchor. Father, we come into this room today from different backgrounds, different experiences, some good weeks, some bad weeks. And so, Father, no matter our circumstances, no matter what we each individually are dealing with this morning, we ask that you teach us, we ask that you show us your son Jesus this morning. Let you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to learn this morning. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, I've told this story before, but it was about three years ago, so I don't expect anybody to remember it, but it's an insightful story. There was a Jewish man named Viktor Frankl, and in the 1930s and 40s, he was a medical doctor and a psychiatrist in Vienna, Austria. And he was also the head of a neurology department of a hospital there in Vienna. And if you know anything about going on in 1930s and 40s, World War II was going on. And being a Jew, in 1942, he and his family were shipped off to a concentration camp. 
And his father passed away from starvation. And then in 1944, they were moved to Auschwitz, the most famous concentration camp, the most well-known, where his mother and his brother were murdered in gas chambers. And his wife was sent to another camp where she also died of typhus. And so Viktor Frankl was a man that saw suffering firsthand, probably more suffering than we can imagine. But he survived it, and as this psychotherapist, he wanted to analyze the different responses that people had to great suffering, to these concentration camps. And so he wrote a book a year after the war ended uh, that talked about people's responses to suffering. And so what he found was that there's four basic responses that people have to suffering, to tragic, to horrific events that happen in their lives. There are four different ones. I'm going to highlight them real quick. The first group of people were those that became brutal. Uh, They became savages. They're they're nice people that were put in hard situations, and they would do anything that they could do to survive, you know, to get any kind of food, any kind of advantage that they could have to survive. They became brutal. They they, um, hurt their own people. The second group of people that he deserved was that there were some people who just gave up. They kind of laid down, they kind of became catatonic, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't become, or they would become unresponsive. And so their level of suffering was so great that they just couldn't bear it and they just gave up. Third group of people that he observed had this mindset of, of if we could just get out of this camp, we can return to life as normal. As if, as if these things never happened, we could ignore them and we could move on. And what he found with these people is that after the war, they couldn't cope with what had happened to them, and it ended up not being a good thing for them. And then the last group of people that he observed, he said there's some people there that were able to maintain who they were, even in the midst of hard circumstances, they were able to remain kind and hospitable, and they made it. They made it out, and they lived, many people lived long and fruitful lives after the concentration camps. And so this is what his results were. This is stuff that he said, not me. He's a psychotherapist, not me. He said the reason that this last group of people survived is because they had hope in something. They had hope. And it was a hope that was in something that was eternal, something that was beyond them, something that was beyond this, it was infinite in reference, right? Beyond their current circumstances, And so it's a hope in something that lasts past what they were immediately going through. And so this is what he says, and I'm quoting him here, Viktor Frankl. He says, life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death itself can destroy. Read that one more time. Life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death itself can destroy. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I want to ask you a question before we dive in. Whatever circumstances that you find yourself in this morning or the hard things that you've done or gone through in the past, what has been your hope? Where has your hope been centered on? And so this morning, our passage talks a lot about hope. And so Peter makes this case that hope, the hope that he speaks of, is this kind of hope that transcends suffering. It transcends the circumstances that we're in, even death. And so Peter, he's writing to Christians who are going through difficult circumstances. 
They're suffering. If you look at verse 1, it says, Peter, I, Peter, am writing to you, elect exiles in the dispersion. So he says exiles. He calls them exiles. Now, God's people, they're no stranger to being exiles. If you're with us in the fall, went through a little mini-series through Numbers, where they are strangers in a strange land. God's people have always been exiles. But this isn't exactly what Peter is talking about here, because he's likely in Rome, writing to people who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All these are Roman provinces. So what he's talking about here when he calls them exiles is not a physical exile, but a spiritual exile. He says, for Christians, we are not completely at home in this world. In fact, John tells us in his gospel that the world hates Christians. And so when Peter writes this letter, Christians, what's happening to them is they're being rounded up, they're being arrested. Many of them are tied to poles and set on fire for parties as lamps for the emperor. This is great suffering that's happening to these Christians. And it's all because they follow Jesus Christ. And so the same is true for us is that we are also spiritual exiles. This home is not our home. Juan Sanchez is a pastor and he says it this way. He says, our identification with Christ is what makes us strangers in this world. We are foreigners in a hostile land, a people presently living in exile, away from our homeland and dispersed throughout the world. And so this morning, whether this language of spiritual exile means absolutely nothing to you, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, or if you feel it very deeply, what I want you to see this morning is the hope that faith in Jesus Christ brings you. So I have three points this morning, three things that I think faith gives you that we can see from this passage. And they're all new things. And so the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that it gives you a new identity. Second thing that we see is that it gives us a new inheritance. And last thing we can see is that it gives us a new inclination. So identity, inheritance, and inclination. If you'll look at our first point this morning, a new identity. And so we can see this in verse 3 very clearly. If you look at your Bibles, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we could probably spend all morning talking about this one verse. It's very packed full. And you can see that he starts out by praising God because He's the source of our faith. He's the source of our hope. But I just want to jump right in and see this first thing that he gives us, this new identity. And you see it right in the middle of this sentence in this great act of mercy, what it is, is that he has caused us to be born again. Born again, new identity. In English, this is eight words, but in the Greek, it's only two words. There's us, and then this other word, that is the other seven words is just one word in the Greek where it says he has caused us to be born again. And so another way that we can translate this, in some of your translations, if you have the NIV or NLT, it actually renders it this way, but it says he has given birth to again. Or simply put, he has given new birth. It's a gift, he has given it. And so the first thing that we see is that we get this new birth And with a new birth comes a new identity, a new citizenship. And so when we read this, our minds immediately go back to John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was a teacher of the law in Israel, and he goes to Jesus at night and he says, how can someone enter the kingdom of heaven? 
And Jesus responds to him, he says, you must be born again. And what Jesus is talking about here that Nicodemus doesn't understand at the time is that he's not talking about a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. And so it's in this new birth that God is our father and we become his children. Uh, Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter one, he says, and you who were once alienated, separated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he now has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so he's saying you're not who you once were. You're not this person who is enslaved to sin anymore. You're a new creation. You're someone who I have bought. And you have a new identity and your identity is this, is that you're a son and a daughter of the almighty king the one true God. And so it's this identity as a child of God, it becomes our deepest and our most important identity in our lives. It's not our careers, it's not our relationship status. It's the identity as being a child of God. And this is why this is so important. Because with this new identity, there comes a new hope for us. It's what Peter calls a living hope that he says in verse three. And so I wanna say something about this word hope though, because the, the biblical use of this word is maybe not how we often use it. You know, we often say things like, I hope that Southern Miss wins. I know we're all saying that, right? I, I hope that Southern Miss wins. Or, or maybe you might be thinking like, I hope we can go have fried chicken for lunch today. The Bible doesn't use hope in that sense. What it means is that it's a certain expectation of a future event. In fact, there's a, there's a Greek lexicon that I use often in the definition for this word. It says, a looking forward to in confident, confident expectation. So there's this confidence behind the word hope. It's not just like, I don't know, will he or won't he? It's a confident expectation that we can have. And it's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it gives us two reasons that I think we can see to have this hopeful expectation in our life. And the first reason, we can see it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, and it tells us that if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, then we'd still be in our sins. If Jesus was never risen from the dead, then we'd be right where we were before him, just stuck in our sins. And so that's one reason we can have hope is that we're no longer in our sins. But here's the second reason. The second reason is because of Jesus' resurrection, we also have the expectation, the hope of our own resurrection. And so for those who are in Christ, death is not the end of the story. A pastor friend of mine says, our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. We'll see each other once again. Death couldn't hold Jesus and it can't hold those who are united to him by faith. And so because of this new identity that we have, we can have hope, this expectation, and not fear everything that happens or everything that the world throws at us. And so we have hope over fear in the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's the first thing that we get is this new identity, this new creation, new status. Look at our second point this morning, a new inheritance. We see this in verses four and five. If you look with me, it says, he's caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And so what we see in this verse is that we have an inheritance that Christ, that in Christ, we have promised to us. And so this makes sense, though, if you think about it, this new identity that we have. If we have a new father, if we're being born again to a father, then we're also born again to an inheritance of that father. Elsewhere in Scripture, it echoes this idea. Romans 8, 16 to 17 says that we are children of God, if children then heirs, heirs of God and Pharaoh, heirs with Christ. Heirs to an inheritance. Galatians says the same thing. We've been made sons, and if we're sons, then we're heirs. There's an inheritance that we had in this new identity that we have. This word inheritance is all throughout the Old Testament, and it's reminiscent of the story of Israel. You know, Israel had an inheritance. And for them, it was the land, if you remember back to the promised land. But they get there, and because of their sin, the land becomes defiled, it becomes corrupted. That's what happens in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, starting with David, or really starting with Saul, I guess, or Judges. But it becomes defiled. And so, this inheritance, though, is different from them. It says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven. And so, it's like this new, invincible inheritance. Nothing can happen to it. It's not like the old inheritance. It's new and it's invincible. After Hurricane Katrina hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast, I was able to spend some time in Waveland, Mississippi. And so I drive down to the coast, and if you went down to the coast after the years after Katrina, it was a different sight than what it was before. It was flat, it was barren, everything. It took years to come back from Katrina. The landscape was just leveled. And so when I would drive down there in Waveland, there would be a bank on Coleman Avenue in Waveland, Mississippi that I would pass. Well, it used to be a bank. After Katrina, it was just a slab, and there was some mangled iron there and then a vault. So it was kind of this weird picture of this flat slab of concrete with a vault on it, right? And so this building that once stood there, it's gone, it's wiped away as if it was just like a drawing on a whiteboard. And so everything was gone. You can actually Google pictures of this bank if you want to see it. But when you look at the bank, it, was, it always struck me because you saw this vault there, but there was no door. It was, it was like blown off or something. I don't know what happened to it, but there was no door on the front of it. And so we often look at banks as if they're like this impenetrable thing, like nothing can happen to it. We put our life savings in it. We trust them. But yet even this bank couldn't hold up to a hurricane. It, it destroyed it. And even the vault that still stood, the door was blown wide open, and so it didn't really do any good to have this vault so unlike this bank that just a hurricane can destroy, the inheritance that we have is completely impenetrable. Like even the door can't be blown off of it. But before I tell you what the inheritance actually is, I want to tell you what it's not. Our inheritance isn't land like it was for Israel. Our inheritance isn't jewelry or family heirloom or a house, and it's not even found in a bank. It's no earthly treasure actually. Rather than all these things, what our inheritance is, is life with Jesus forever. It's life with Jesus forever. And so Peter goes on to say that this inheritance is being kept in heaven. Kept in heaven. And I think this is such an interesting image here. And D.A. Carson points out that we spend our whole lives trying to keep things, right? We try to keep money and clothes and houses, but we also try to keep our families safe we try to keep food from going bad by sticking it in our fridge or wrapping it in foil. 
We try to keep our families intact. We try to keep our kids safe. We try to keep our bodies from fading. We try to keep our grades above a certain level. We try to keep away from danger. And so we're always trying to keep things, and we spend a lot of money and energy to do so. And ultimately, we can't keep all these things. Everything's going to fade away. This is what Carson says. He says, but there's hope, but here's the hope. This inheritance of life forever with Jesus is kept in heaven for us, and God is the perfect keeper. You know, if it was up to us to keep it, we'd probably lose it. I've lost a million things in my life. I've lost wallets. I've lost car keys. But we have a perfect keeper. And not only is he keeping the inheritance safe, undefiled for you, but he's also keeping you. If you look at verse 5, it says, This is for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so you are also being guarded. You are also being kept. And you're being guarded by God's power and through faith, trusting in that power. And so this is amazing news for us because we're about to see this again in our final point. But when trials come, when suffering comes, when life gets hard, God doesn't look at me and say, buck up, Jeremy, believe harder. Right? That's not what he says. Like, it's time to, time to clench the fist and, and fight it. Like, believe harder. He doesn't leave us to try and sustain our faith in our own power. But it's actually the opposite. It's by his power that our faith is sustained. Our faith is guarded by him. And it's guarded in such a way that there's no trial, there's no suffering that can take the inheritance away from us. And so this inheritance is a gift And if you know anything about inheritances, it has nothing to do with what you are, but your relationship to somebody. It's not something that's earned, but it's rather it's just something you get from being in a relationship with someone. And so I want to back up here for a second to this idea of our new identity. In the first point, did you see how we were born again? If you look back at verse 3, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's from him. And so this is the promise that every Christian has. The very God that grants saving faith is also sustaining and strengthening that faith until the day when we receive that invincible inheritance. And so it's all on God. And so I love that benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5.24, and it ends with this. It says, he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. It's all on God. He keeps us, he calls us, and he sustains us. So not only is he keeping this inheritance safe, eternal life with God, but he's also keeping you safe until that day happens. And so we've seen this new identity and how it leads to hope. Now we've seen a new inheritance and how it leads to hope. Let's look at our last thing this morning that we get. The last thing that faith gives us, and it's a new inclination. So I want you to follow my logic here. Faith results in being born again. And so if you're you're a Christian, then this is something that's already happened, right? This is something that's happened in the past. We've been born again once. It doesn't happen continually. One time it's happened in the past. 
And then we talk about the inheritance. That's something that's going to happen in the future. Right? So we have this in-between time. In-between when you come to Christ and in-between when we receive that final inheritance. So this last point, we're going to look at the present. How then do we live in this present life? And so we see this in verses 6 to 9. How we're to live between these two things in which we get a new identity and this new inheritance. And so we see a new way to live, a new inclination that we have in our lives. And what this inclination is, is that it's an inclination towards rejoicing and joy. If you look at verse 6, it says, in this, everything that he's talked about, right? In this inheritance, in this new identity, in this you rejoice. And so this idea of this inheritance is to bring about joy and rejoicing in our lives. And so in this certain, hopeful expectation, we rejoice. But verse 6 kind of continues on and qualifies it. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so what this rejoicing is... It's a rejoicing that transcends our current circumstances. It's a rejoicing that can transcend whether they're good or bad circumstances in our lives. And so earlier we mentioned a little bit about the circumstances that Christians were in the time that First Peter wrote this. But then he says it again. They're being grieved by various trials. And so in the first century, life was not so good for Christians. In our culture, especially in the South, maybe even for the last 50 years or so, Christians have been esteemed. And the, the, the tides kind of started to turn on that as we kind of move towards being a more post-Christian nation. But we still have certain freedoms in our lives. We still have certain jobs and families. And those kind of things make it easier for us to rejoice. But the first century Christian had the opposite experience of ours. In fact, verse 8 tells us more about this joy. It says, though you haven't seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so Peter, what he's doing is that he's picking up on something here that seems counterintuitive to the logic of our world, right? But it's actually the theme of this New Testament that despite affliction, despite suffering, despite grievous things happening to you, Christians, you can still have joy in the midst of it. 2 Corinthians 6.10 describes Christians as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 4.6 says that you have received the word in much affliction but with joy of the Spirit. And this theme of joy through suffering, joy through trials shows up over and over and over again in the New Testament. Matthew 5.12, Colossians 1.11, verse 24 from Colossians 1, Romans 5.3, 8.18, 2 Corinthians 1.5, and I could keep going. It shows up over and over and over again. This idea of joy, rejoicing in the midst of suffering. And so we can get a window into what this looks like in the life of a first century martyr named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was Bishop of Smyrna. And so he lived into his 80s. In the year 155, about 90 years after Peter wrote this letter, Polycarp was arrested by the Roman government for refusing to renounce Christianity and to worship the emperor. And so his punishment that Polycarp received was that he was going to be burned at the stake. And so as they're about to nail him to the post, he says, you don't need nails. I'm going to stand here and endure it. 
and won't go anywhere. And as being prepared to be burned, the Romans asked him again to renounce Jesus. This is how Polycarp responds. He says, 80 and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And so they continued, and as he was dying, he was recorded as saying this. He says, I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of Christ for the resurrection to everlasting life, both of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. So even as Polycarp is dying, even as he is being burned at the stake, he has in the forefront of his mind this idea of resurrection and living hope. He had a living hope that was able to transcend horrific, awful, unjust circumstances. And we see in him that he has this hope that gives this inexpressible joy and even courage to face what he has head on. And so for the Christian, again, death no longer gets the last word. You are safe in God's grace, under God's protection. And so it's in this grace that we can rejoice no matter what circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so this morning, I want to ask you though, do you have a hope that enables you to rejoice in no matter what your circumstances are? Or is your hope only tied to things of this world? If your joy is only tied to things of this world, it's only going to let you down. And we do this so often though. We try to tie ourselves down to worldly things. We try to find joy in worldly things. If our joy is rooted in financial security, then it fluctuates based on the amount of money that we have in our bank account. If our joy is rooted in a relationship, then our joy fluctuates based on whether that person feels about me today or how they feel about me today. If it's rooted in status or a social life, then it rises and falls whether we're accepted or not. Goes up and down. If our joy comes from our current circumstances, if our joy comes from just what's going on in life right now, then it can rise and fall whether you're having a bad day or a good day. And so ultimately, we can easily become a slave to our circumstances, where our life is completely dictated, where our joy is completely dictated by what's going on around us. You rejoice when things are going your way, and you can grieve when things aren't going your way. But the only way that you can rejoice while grieving is because you have a living hope that's secure. And going back to what Viktor Frankl said, it's a hope that neither suffering circumstances nor death itself can destroy. But there's one more thing I want to point out here in this passage. That every trial that you experience in life, every, every hardship, every, everything that you experience in life, whether it's criticism from someone or whether it's a cancer diagnosis, there's purpose behind it all. If you look at verse 7, it says, These have come, trials, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so what Peter does is that he compares our faith while we're going through trials to the process of making gold. 
Now, I don't remember why I saw this video recently or while I was watching it, but somehow I ended up on a video of a guy that was panning for gold in a river. And so what he did is he takes this big chunk of dirt and he throws it in a pan and he sifts through it and you start to see he's got a few gold specks. And so he starts to add all these up and he throws all these gold specks into this furnace and it heats up and this metal becomes liquid and fuses together. What happens is this, this black dark stuff rises to the top and he takes it out and those are the imperfections in it. And so what's left inside the canister is just pure solid gold. It's not gilded, it's not fool's gold, it's been tested, it's been strengthened, it's been found genuine and pure. Well, Peter says the exact same thing is happening to your faith when we experience trials. And he says that it even results in, resu- or in praise and glory and honor. And here's D.A. Carson on this. He says, let's say it right out and wonder at it. Suffering is actually part of God's plan and so necessary to bring about the shining riches of praise and glory and honor. And so if God is in control of the universe, then suffering just isn't random. It's not out of God's control. It doesn't happen apart from Him. But all throughout Scripture, we're told that God is taking what was meant for evil and transforming it to good for those who love Him. And so if that's the case, then our suffering, our trials have a purpose in our life. They're they're not just random. And that purpose is to strengthen our faith. And remember though, who is the one that strengthens your faith? Who is the one that sustains your faith through these trials? And so it's this very reason that Paul can say, in one of my all-time favorite verses, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look to not what is seen, but what is unseen. So all of this leads me to a question. How can I long for this eternal weight of glory? What gives us strength to sustain through the fire, right? So this is the last thing I'll say about this section. If you look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this is all talking about a person. The way that we're sustained through the fire, the way that we can have this expectation and longing for an eternal weight of glory is because of Jesus. He's how we're sustained through the fire. And so it's not a sermon about Jesus that sustains us. It's not an idea about Jesus that sustains us, but it's actually Jesus himself. He himself is our hope. The one who was sentenced to death on our behalf. The one who rose from the dead, securing victory over death for us. The one who's seated at the right hand of God, even now where he's interceding for you. No matter what circumstance, no matter what trial, though you grieve through it, Jesus is right next to God right now, interceding on your behalf. And so we see in this passage that God gives us three things. A new identity, a new inheritance, and a new inclination to rejoice in Him no matter what's happening around us. And so this morning, I want to leave you with a question. 
Where is your joy rooted in? What do you trust in to get you through the sufferings and trials of life? And do you know this Jesus that gives you a living hope that can transcend all of life's circumstances?